It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It was a cold and snowy February evening in Haverhill, New Hampshire. Around 7.30 that night, a resident reported a car accident just outside her home on Wild Amanusik Road. A black sedan was resting against a snowbank on Route 112, with a young woman shivering inside. A passing school bus driver stopped at the site of the crash and offered help to the young driver. She declined and said she had already called AAA. The bus driver knew there was no cell reception at the crash site, so when he returned home at 7.42, he called the police to tell them about the incident. Officers arrived at the site just three minutes after the call was placed. Upon arrival, they found the car in question, along with a cracked windshield, deployed airbags, and red stains in and outside of the vehicle. What they weren't able to find was the driver of the car. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. of her disappearance, 21-year-old Mara Murray was a bright student and an exceptional athlete. Although she initially enrolled at West Point Military Academy, Mara decided against pursuing a future in the military and transferred to a competitive nursing program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Mara had a promising road ahead of her, making her actions on the day of her disappearance all the more unusual. On the morning of February 9th, 2004, Mara submitted her nursing homework. She emailed professors that she had had a death in the family and was going to take a few days off, a statement that wasn't true. Mara then left campus with a bag packed full of clothes, textbooks, and toiletries. She withdrew $280 from a nearby ATM, which was nearly her entire bank account, and then purchased $40 worth of alcohol. Then Mara drove off in her 1996 Saturn sedan and hasn't been seen since. 19 years later, Mara's family continues to work tirelessly to tell Mara's story and move the investigation forward. Today, I'm joined by Julie Murray, Mara's older sister, who has been leading an online campaign to search for Mara and finally find answers. Julie Murray, thank you so much for being here today to share the story that you and your family have gone through for the past 19 years. What happened that you know of or that you think happened on February 9th, 2004? Well, my little sister, Mara, she was a 21-year-old nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And on February 9th, she submitted her nursing school homework assignment very early in the morning. I think it was around 3 a.m. Um, it was looking up maternity terms. So she emailed that homework off and then she did some internet searches. She was looking for directions to both Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, then she got some sleep, 
then mid-morning the next day, February 9th, she continued to do some internet searches and she um, contacted a condo owner um, up in New Hampshire where my family had stayed before. And she was inquiring about um, booking the condo, uh, but she didn't make that reservation. So the day progresses a little bit and she is playing phone tag with her boyfriend, Bill, who was my West Point classmate and a lieutenant in the Army stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Now, she played phone tag with him that day. She emailed him, but they never spoke. Um, And then she did a number of things um, mid-afternoon to include she returned some clothes that she had borrowed from a classmate in her nursing program. And then she went to... Um, an ATM. She withdrew $280, leaving just shy of $20 in her bank account. Then she went to a liquor store. She purchased approximately $40 worth of liquor, and she also returned 79 cans to redeem $3.95. After that, she gets in her 1996 black Saturn sedan that was only running on three cylinders. It was in rough shape, and she heads north and she doesn't tell anyone, destination unknown, no reservations. She checks her voicemail at 4.37 p.m. that day, and that was the last cell phone activity ever. Um, Fast forward a couple hours, about 7.30 p.m. that night, a woman up in a small rural town called Haverhill, New Hampshire, notices a vehicle off the side of the road. And she looks out, sees a black sedan um, in the eastbound lane facing the wrong direction. So she calls 911, um, reports vehicle off the road. She also notes that she sees a man smoking a cigarette, which she'll later recant. Um, A short while later, a bus driver, her neighbor Butch Atwood, drives by. He was returning home from dropping students off at a ski trip. He stops and speaks to the driver, which we have to assume was Mara, um, offers assistance. The driver declines and says no, she had already called AAA roadside assistance. But he knew that was not true because there's no cell phone service in that remote area. And he went home uh, not far up the road and he placed the second 911 call at 7.42 p.m., uh, At 7.46, the first responding officer arrives on scene. So this is 16 minutes after the first 911 call, three minutes after the second. When the officer arrives, the Black Saturn is locked and Mara is nowhere to be found. There was a crack in the windshield, both airbags deployed, and he noticed some red liquid on the roof and the driver's side door. Um, And that was the last time... Mara was ever seen. And did we ever get a report or confirmation what that red liquid was? We assume it was wine, but I haven't seen any documentation that um, 100% says that it was. But she did have wine in her car at the time. She had a boxed wine, which was behind her driver's seat. It was purchased previously uh, that Saturday, so it had already been open, um, but we have to assume that it was wine. 
So after that, when was the first time that you were alerted or notified that your sister went missing? And what were the events that transpired at that point? So that was Monday night, February 9th, when those 911 calls took place. My family was not notified until late the next day, even though the car was registered to my dad. So when they ran the plate, it came back to my dad. Um, So we didn't find out that anything was wrong until the next Tuesday night. Yeah. So during that time in that pocket of not communicating with her, was that normal or or typical, I should say? Um, or were you used to texting or emailing with her every single day? And so you were already alarmed when you hadn't heard from her for those two days? Well, for me, it wasn't abnormal not to hear from her for a few days. I spoke to her on Saturday um, when she was car shopping um, with my dad. But this was 2004, so we're talking before text messaging and, and that whole thing. So we norm, Ma, Mara and I normally communicated through instant messenger. Um, and I was out of state. I was stationed in the Army. I was down at Fort Bragg at the time. So it wasn't um, something that concerned me that I hadn't heard from her in two days. When the contents of her car were inventoried, was her wallet and personal belongings still in the car? Was there anything missing that you know she would have kept with her? Well, her phone was missing, her wallet was missing, the keys are missing, all of her cards, cash, all of that was missing, and it's never been found. Does that indicate to you that she expected to return to the car? I believe she expected to return to the car. Um, I will note that she also brought her school books with her. She had textbooks with her in the car, indicating to me that she had planned to keep up with her schoolwork. And once your family was notified, what did you go through at that point? How did investigators work with you? And how were those next few months? What did they look like for you? Well, all hell broke loose when we got the call on Tuesday because, you know, Mara had just started classes at UMass, so there was no reason for her to be in New Hampshire. And like I said before, she didn't tell anyone she was going to New Hampshire. We didn't have any reason why she would be up there. So when we, we learned that her car was up in New Hampshire on a Monday night in the middle of February, that just came as a total shock to us and we were just in complete panic mode. So my dad was in Connecticut at the time. He contacted um, the police that Tuesday and they weren't very forthcoming with the information. They said, Hey, this thing happens all the time where motorists leave their vehicles and they return the next day. And my dad was adamant that something was not right. And so was everybody else in my family. My other, um, sister Kathleen and my brothers Freddie and Curtis we were we knew something was not right um so my dad jumped in his car late on Tuesday really early on Wednesday and headed up to New Hampshire about a five-hour drive and when he got to New Hampshire that Wednesday his expectation was that he was going to go join the search because obviously he thought that (laughs) The, the authorities would be out there searching, but they were not. So my dad essentially was the search, and he had to demand that they search for Mara. 
Um, and then that's when the first search happened that Wednesday, um, early afternoon and New Hampshire fish and game went, came out, they did line searches. They had a bloodhound out there and they found nothing, no footprints, no, no evident, nothing. So two and a half days after Mara went missing is the first time that authorities conducted a search of the area. Correct. Um, the, they did, the police did tell us, the local police told us that they did a cursory search the night of on Monday, just looking for footprints in and around where the vehicle was abandoned, but they didn't find any. Uh, but the full, the, the first full blown search wasn't until that Wednesday, which was very upsetting to my family because we know that, especially with the, we know now in hindsight how important those few hours are after somebody goes missing. That is the window of opportunity where you're going to find something. And we missed that entire, or they missed that entire opportunity. And what explanation have you received, if any, for that delay? Like I said, they they just told us, well, this thing happens all the time where we have out-of-state people come here and they either DUI walk away or they have mechanical problems, they leave the car and they show up the next day. And we were adamant that, no, that that's this isn't like Mara. This is way out of character. Something is wrong. Search now. And it wasn't until we kind of forced it that they started taking it seriously. And this was 19 years ago. So that's the first couple days that we're discussing right now. How has the investigation played out and what kind of attention has this search received since then? Well, you know, it was it was it was rough the first couple weeks uh, because my family was still in shock and we we weren't seeing what we thought we should see from the authorities in terms of pulling out all stops and searching everywhere. And it was more of my family kind of canvassing the area, hanging, hanging flyers, talking to neighbors. My family were the first people to talk to some of the immediate neighbors. Police had not talked to some of the immediate neighbors, which really, really um, irritated us because you know, we're not investigators, we're just regular people. And if we know to do that, we felt like there was another lost opportunity. So there was some um, tension between my family and law enforcement, us saying, hey, you need to do more. And they, them saying, you know, we're doing everything that we can. So eventually, the state police got involved. And um they did do a few more searches. And again, we're talking about New Hampshire, February, there was snow on the ground, it's cold. So they couldn't do um, more kind of in the woods type searches until that spring, um, which again was very frustrating for my family. Um, but they did do a, a line search again that spring, again, found nothing, Um and then, you know, over the past 19 years, there's been searches here and there as tips come in and leads come in. But the majority of the searching is done by my family and 
supporters and advocates that just volunteer their time. I mean, my dad, he was up there every single weekend for, you know, for years, just searching all by himself sometimes. And that's just heartbreaking to think of, um, of just that image of him doing that. And in these searches that your family was conducting and the conversations you had with people in the immediate area, what information, if any, did you uncover that was helpful or that led to any developments? Well, that's the thing. And that's kind of the draw to my sister's case and why it has so much publicity because it's such a mystery because during those initial searches, we got nothing. You know, we got the, the first 911 caller saying she saw the vehicle off the road. She sees a man smoking a cigarette. Then she recants that and said, no, maybe it was not a cigarette. Maybe it was the light from a cell phone. And then we get, um, the bus driver who stopped by there, we showed him a picture and he says, nope, that didn't look like who I saw that night. Then he recants and says, well, maybe it did. And the picture, my sister always wore her hair up. And the bus driver said the person I spoke to had her hair down. So it's been hard to reconcile those, those two pieces because Mara always wore her hair up. Uh, but he later said, yeah, yeah, that kind of looks like who I talked to. So it's just been um, a struggle to just get a straight story um, from the beginning, from day one. And it's been that way ever since. And we weren't getting a lot of cooperation with law enforcement. They weren't sharing what they were doing. So my family was in a tight position because we don't know what they've looked into. And so we're asking them, hey, can we collaborate and you let us know if you've already run this lead or this avenue down so that we can focus on something else. And there was never that collaborative relationship. So my dad eventually sued the state of New Hampshire for the case files because in his mind, he's saying, if, you, if you're not going to investigate this, I'm going to. And there might be something in those files that doesn't mean anything to you, some middle-aged man who's a stranger and never met this woman, that may mean something to my family. It could be a clue as to why she was there in the first place and what happened to her. So eventually um, they did release some of the records, but certainly not all of them. Um, but that was, again, another sort of um, ten- point of tension between my family and the authorities. We're pushing for more information and they're just saying, no, we can't release it because it's an open and active case. Um, but that relationship has gotten a little bit better. There's been some change out of, um, people on the, the cold case unit. So I feel now 19 years later, we're more in that collaborative phase where I wish we would have been day one. So we'll be right back with more of this story. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. One of the quotes by you that struck me about this case um, was last July, and you said, we've had no clues, no answers this entire time, and that was you know, just last year, 
18 years after your sister went missing. And I couldn't imagine having such a lack of information, such a lack of anything for so long. Does that still remain true at this moment that you have no clues and no answers? Yeah, I mean, there's really been nothing. And that's what's so hard about my sister's case and other missing person cases. As the years go on, you know, it just gets more ambiguous. And so you're dealing with trying to find answers, but you're also dealing with how it affects you personally and having this just gray cloud that follows you everywhere you go because it's so ambiguous and it's unresolved. Um, that if you isolate that, you know, that's, that's tough. I mean, that type of grief, the type of grief where you have no closure, you have no resolution, you have no answers that is hard to deal with. And as time goes on, it gets harder. It doesn't get easier. So that's why I always say when people comment, you know, time heals all. Yeah, but not for missing persons and not for the families left behind in the wakes of these tragedies. Because time does not heal all and time does not make it easier. It makes it more difficult. So that's one of the things that I, I feel like I'm a broken record when I say that, but it's just so true and I live it every day. I read in your blog where you spoke about grief and your grieving process and part of what added to that trauma and continues to add to it is the ambiguity of your memories. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, everyone deals with trauma in their own unique way and my family's no different. So even if you look at my family individually, my dad, he's angry because that's his outlet for his grief. He wants to get angry and he wants answers and he wants to demand action. For me, you know, I try to look at it more analytically and pragmatically thinking, okay, what can I do next? How can I keep my sanity as I try to figure out what happened to my sister and not, um, it go down these rabbit holes and get too distracted with, with everything that's online. Um, and for missing people, it's not a straight line grief process. So there, you can never go through the stages of grief if there's no answers and there's no resolution. So it's the cyclical thing that you do every day and you're thinking well what if this what if I did that and you start to blame yourself and then you pull yourself out of that so it's always like walking a tightrope of I don't want to get too hopeful if I get a new tip in and I also don't want to lose too much hope to where now I got to pull myself up out of this dark hole so you've got to walk that fine line which is it's very difficult in this age of true crime interest and internet sleuthing. We've talked about the, you know, the era of technology around 2004. And then now there has been great interest in your case. Um, I'm sure never enough. There's never too much interest. And there have been a lot of theories put forth about what happened to your sister. Has that um, weighing in of, of the internet, has that helped you? Has that helped this case? 
Has that been and and is it a distraction that's difficult for you, a, a challenge? Can you speak to how that has influenced and impacted you as as a film member? Well, social media is a double-edged sword. And what I mean by that is, you know, when my sister went missing, it was 2004. She went missing the same week that Facebook launched. And so here you have my family up in this rural town in New Hampshire pinning up flyers, right? But now with social media, we can click a button and we can get widespread coverage and awareness with a click of a button. So initially, social media was a great tool to have because, you know, people were hearing about my sister all over the country, all over the world. Now, we could never be able to do that without social media. But then there's the other side of social media where you've got Internet trolls and you've got misinformation and you have wild speculation, and all these rumors. And for my family, that was impossible and is impossible to control because we cannot police the Internet. I can't go online and correct all the misinformation about my sister's case and say, hey, that's that's hearsay that there's no evidence to point to that. And so it's kind of like a train, you know, off the tracks. And um, I could spend all day, every day, just online correcting misinformation, and I still wouldn't get it all. So that's the, the bad side, the negative side of social media. But families like mine rely on social media to keep spreading awareness because for cases like this, 19 years old, the only way we're going to get this solved is if we continue to raise awareness because I am sure that somebody out there knows something. I need to reach that person, and the way that I'm going to do that is through social media. So although it has its ugly side, it's just something that we have to, we have to go through. I don't want to give oxygen to non-credible tips or theories or speculations. I don't want to feed that misinformation. But due to so much of it out there, can you share what has been debunked? Can you weigh in on the allegations of sightings of your sister in Canada and people who have um, purported that she had someone with her at the time and, you know, included in that recanted observation by the first woman who called 911 who said for she saw a male. Um, how has any of that been put to rest in your mind? And if so, exactly why? Well, I mean, there's been misinformation from day one. And it's just it just has gotten worse over time. Because the way that social media works, and and the way the world works now is, if you continue to say something, people take it as fact. And that's just not true. And that's just spreading misinformation, which is harmful. It's harmful for the investigation, because the investigators have their hands full, and they don't have time to be chasing down bogus leads. But that's what the internet produces sometimes. Um, Also, it's harmful to my sister. You know, my sister wasn't perfect by any means. And she made mistakes and she was 21. Um, But to focus on all of her missteps and not the totality of her life is just unfair. You know, we all make mistakes when we're 21. And um, 
that's something that's important to me to try to um, share who Mara really was, who my sister really was. She wasn't just this 21-year-old who one day made a bad decision. She was way more than that. Um, and that's something that I've, I've been trying really hard to, to um, articulate to people. Um, you know, there's been no credible sightings. Um, as much as people want her to be out there living her best life, it just, there's simply no evidence to that. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of misinformation surrounding the initial reports by police. And I'm one where I, I don't want to rewrite history. I have to go with what I can prove and what's documented. So, for instance, the time that the first officer arrived on scene, that time is documented in police logs at 746. We can't now go back and rewrite that because it doesn't fit our particular narrative. Um, so that's the thing. You know, I get tips in all the time and I get sightings all the time. And most of that is not actionable things for me. It's not something that I can go run down. It's just, I heard this from so-and-so and it's third party, third person perspective, and you can't really pursue that. Um, so that, that's also been a struggle, you know, to try to balance, um, my time and, and what am I going to spend my energy on? Am I going to spend my energy on fighting trolls on the internet or am I going to try to talk to investigators and you know, look at real leads. Has there been anything, anything that was ever an actionable lead for you? Has there ever been a piece of information or something that, that obviously, as you've underscored earlier, at this moment, we do not have clues or answers, but has there been anything along this time that was fruitful for you in any way, if, if only to rule out which in these kind of investigations is just as important as including in? Yeah, I mean, we've had, we've had multiple um, volunteers with really um, expensive equipment come up and volunteer their time and their expertise. We've had forensic anthropologists come out. We've had people um, help us with uh, digs and um, we've had, we've used labs to test things. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm very happy with the amount of support that my family has gotten. And I understand that Mars is just one of thousands of missing people. And, and I'm lucky to have the support that I have. Um, but it's not by accident. You know, my family's out here, constantly, constantly doing things like this and constantly not allowing anyone to forget that she's still missing. And that's our mission and we'll continue to do so. And, you know, I like to talk to families that are like mine and in like situations to kind of share ideas and what work for them. And, you know, we have gotten several credible tips and we've have been able to run those down and get things tested and like you said, have one thing crossed off. Um, I don't like to say ruled out because we can't rule anything out until we find Mara. But at least we can shift our resources and shift our focus. Included in that has been um, extensive to a degree uh, surveillance and investigation and digging 
in the area and under some or at least one home right in that area. Um, do you feel satisfied? And that included digging under a foundation and it included a lot of um, forensics analysis. Uh, do you feel that satisfied with the amount of investigation in that surrounding area? Or do you feel that there could be and will be more physical investigation and digging and um, the the radar beneath the, the soil and things like that in that vicinity of where her car was? Absolutely. We, we already have something lined up for the spring. I mean, we, we're constantly looking and... Um, we've got a, a ton of support behind us and most of our support and professionals that come in and help us do it pro bono. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we are continuing to do that and we run down any leads that we get. And like I said, we, we have something big coming up, um, this spring. And is that what you were mentioning on the website where you said we, we can't reveal more information at this point, but we, we have been collaborating with law enforcement, as you articulated earlier, and there will be more information coming soon. And is the information coming soon about this surveillance and investigation? It's, it's not tangible um, information. It's the search for it, I should say. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We're constantly searching for something so that we can run it down. Um, I won't say that, you know, a lot of the the searches that we do, if we do find things, that goes directly to investigators. It doesn't go on social media. So, you know, I, my family's not going to be the one to say, this is what we found. It's going to investigators. And so, you know, I'm not at liberty to, you know, say what it is that we found. Um, but that's just the way it has to be because, you know, I keep saying somebody knows something and we just need to find that one or two pieces to, to pull this mystery together. The mystery and the mysterious aspect of it that you've been talking about is, is partly amplified in my opinion, because the window was so short as you cited so clearly earlier that the time between the first 911 call and the responding officer was 11 minutes. And from the second 911 call to the responding officer was three minutes. Mm -hmm. So from the driver that engaged with, we, we assume, as you said, that you assume it's Mara, um, that is an incredibly tight window. And when we talk about probabilities and statistics, there are essentially two competing theories that are given the most oxygen online one of which is that a nefarious interceptor occurred during that small window, and you said that your father believes that. Um, and then the other competing theory is that during that short window that there was someone else that she was with or knew of, and she elected to depart with that person. Either way, it's a very tight window, and um, some articulate the statistical probability of it being so so random and so difficult given that three minutes and that there wasn't another reported sighting of another vehicle or person in that area. So of these scattered points I just said, which do you feel is more probable and why? Well, two things. So it was 16 minutes between the first 911 call and when the first officer arrived. Um, and then 
three minutes from the second witness to when the first officer arrived. So that's important to note. Um, But I will say there's no evidence that somebody else was with her. Um, No one has come forward. There's there was multiple witnesses. They didn't see a second car pull up. Um, They didn't see any interaction between Mara and anybody or they haven't said publicly that they have. Um, So what I think is that when the when the bus driver approached my sister at uh you know 736 around that time frame um she didn't have her plan yet and perhaps she was going to try to call AAA but didn't realize at the time that she didn't have cell service so she may have said, hey, bus driver, I got it. I'm going to, you know, I called AAA thinking I'm about to call AAA. And then once she realized after she declined his help, he goes back home. She realizes she doesn't have service. Then she is, she knows she's in, she's in a tough spot. So that's when she realizes, okay, I'm going to try to accept the next ride. And so, like you said, there's that short window Um, We know several cars went by, so somebody could have came by and offered her assistance, and she jumps in, and now she's gone in that short window. How do you know several cars went by? The bus driver and the first witness said that multiple vehicles went by. They didn't know exactly how many, but there was, I mean, I've spoken to some people that went by, other witnesses that, that drove by. And all of those other witnesses saw only the car. They did not see Mara standing there. Correct. Yep. The only one that had any engagement with Mara was the bus driver. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Going into Mara a little bit further, you mentioned that at that point, perhaps she didn't have a plan. Um, She was an exceptional athlete. She attended West Point for... um, a short while before transferring to Amherst, UMass Amherst. Um, this was someone who, like you, who graduated and, and served, I would think, being a, a type A, you've described her and yourself as, and um, that this is the kind of person that would, of any of us, be able to formulate a plan and know exactly what to do, perhaps, in that situation. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I I would say Mara could solve a math problem, but she didn't necessarily have the street smarts to know exactly what to do. She was brilliant. You know, she scored almost perfect on her SATs. She got into one of the best schools in the country, West Point. She got nominated by a senator to go to West Point. She exhibited, you know, amazing potential academically and um, athletically. Uh, But, you know, we grew up from, we were in a small town. We grew up in this small town called Hanson, Massachusetts, where there wasn't a whole lot of crime, you know, and we spent every summer in New Hampshire, not exactly where the car was found, but in that vicinity. So she would have felt safe there. She wouldn't have her guard up because we never experienced any kind of crime or any scares. So I feel like she had her guard down um, because she was in that comfort zone of that area that we spent so much time in. Um, So she, she wouldn't necessarily 
have had the street smarts to say, go start a new life. She didn't have the resources to do that. Um, And there's no evidence of that. Um, But, you know, that and that's another layer to the whole mystery. It's, you know, you've got this brilliant young woman with her whole life ahead of her. You'd think she would know enough to accept that help from the bus driver, you know. But I think she knew enough to accept help, but she accepted help from the wrong person, is what I think. Going back to the first few days or the last few days um, before she went missing, you mentioned you talked to her on Saturday. You walked us through. She turned in her homework. Um, She returned clothes to a friend in addition to bringing her textbooks with her, contacting a a condo owner in a place that she liked to visit sometimes or vacation sometimes. Um, What was the phone call like that you had with her? And what do you make of all of those actions of hers taking out most of her bank account and, and going shopping and picking up alcohol and whatnot, are those, were those all abnormal? Do those all indicate what to you? Well, one thing I, I left out um, was by mistake. She also emailed her professors and said that there was a death in the family and there was no death in the family. This was the day that she disappeared. Um, that was odd behavior, emailing professors, calling out of school, because it was a very competitive nursing program, and um, she couldn't miss school, and she couldn't miss any tests or clinicals. She had to go to different hospitals and do clinicals, so that part was way out of character. It wasn't out of character for her to bring running gear, because running's in our blood. Anywhere we go, we're always running you know, even on Christmas and Thanksgiving, we are running um, because we love to do it. Um, And so that told me the fact that she brought some running gear, she brought her textbooks, she emailed a professor trying to get an excuse to get a few days off. She didn't let her classmates down. She turned in her homework. Um, All of those things say to me that this wasn't I'm going to go start a new life. This was, I'm going to go to some unknown location for some unknown reason, maybe to clear my head for a few days, but I'm coming back. And you've mentioned, again, in in your personal writings, um, so as you just said, maybe a break, maybe just she just needed a break and she wanted to do it in a way that didn't interfere with her competitiveness in the program. So attributing it to a death in the family, albeit dishonest at that moment, was a way for her to have a breathing room for a moment and just some time to herself. Um, And you wrote prior that um, she did something sort of out of character at, I believe it was West Point, um, which you felt potentially looking back was a cry for help and it involved um, her being at the the PX store. Is that something that you feel is still relevant to your analysis? Yeah, I mean, Mara was not happy at West Point. It wasn't for her. Um, It suited my personality way better, and I was the reason why she went there in the first place, because I convinced her how much she would like it. Um, But it it wasn't for her. The whole military part wasn't for her. And what people forget is, you know, when I went to West Point, this was before 9-11. And when Mara went to West Point, when she signed up, it was pre-9-11. 
9-11 happened when Mara and I were both cadets. So that changed the whole outlook. You know, we knew we're, we're, we're going to war. And so that was another um, factor that informed her decision to leave, in my opinion. Um, because at that point, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. All we knew is we're probably going to Iraq or Afghanistan. And so she had two years, cadets have two years to decide whether they want to continue on with the academy or not. And once you sign up and say, I'm going to continue on, then you're locked in to five years active duty and then three years of individual ready reserve. So that's eight years of your life that you're giving up that you can decide not to do after two years at West Point. And so I think part of why Mara made those dumb decisions and took $5 worth of makeup at the PX was so she didn't have to say, I quit. She had a reason, uh, okay, I'm in this trouble, and plus I don't want to be here anyway, so I'm just going to leave. I'm going to transfer. Her boyfriend, Bill, that you've mentioned, that was your classmate at West Point, what and how has he been involved in um, the investigation in those days, the final days before she went missing? You said they, they emailed you, articulated their interaction, but um, what part did he play in the investigation? And are you still close with him to this day? And how has that played out? Well, I wasn't friends with her boyfriend, Bill, even though he's my classmate at West Point. We ran in different circles. I was on the sports team. He was not. Um, and and I've said this to his face. I didn't like him. I didn't like him. I told Mara to leave him. I just thought he wasn't the best fit for her. Um, but once Mara left West Point, they continued an on again, off again relationship. Um, while she was at UMass and they would see each other, you know, not that often, but you could drive from West Point to UMass. So it, it was doable on weekends and things like that. Um, But he, after graduation, he got stationed at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, which is a training base. So I knew that that Mara and he were kind of um, having just normal fights. And uh, there was infidelity and they were just kids, you know. They, They were just going through it like everybody else was. Mara never indicated that there was any sort of abuse or anything like that. It was just the typical, oh, we got into a fight, we're breaking up, we're back together, breaking up, back together. So it was just constantly like that for, you know, however long it was. Um, But once we got the call that Mara was missing, Bill was at his training base, and he, he wasn't in deployment prep like I was. I was in a line unit at Fort Bragg, so I couldn't just up and leave and come to New Hampshire, whereas Bill could because they were just training. They weren't slotted for a deployment. Um, But, you know, he was at Fort Sill at the time of the disappearance, um, and I was at Fort Bragg, so he was able to go up to New Hampshire and help search Um, And investigators obviously looked at him because he was the boyfriend. So naturally they would, you know, see if there was anything there. And, you know, the investigators never reached out to him again. So they asked him whatever they needed to ask him that first two weeks. And then they never reached out to him again. Does he still have a relationship with your family? 
Um, he'll, he offers to help anything that we need. If I have questions, he'll answer. Um, so him and his family have been supportive. Yes. Tell us more about Mara. You said, um, I, I read that, that she's the kind of person that breathed oxygen into every situation. And I felt like that was such a beautiful way of describing your sister, um, because it perfectly encapsulates the kind of person that lights up the room and lights up everyone else by virtue of just her presence. Yeah, everyone in my family is introverted, maybe except for my dad. Um, My mother was very introverted, um, very emotional, and so was Mara. And all of the kids, my siblings, were all um, introverted. So um, that's how Mara was. But Mara was really funny and really witty, and she was able to come back with really smart, you know, comments out of nowhere and make everybody laugh and, you know, talk smack. That's the thing that I miss most about Mara is being able to have that New England smack talk, you know, constant back and forth. I miss that. And that's what she was great at. And, you know, she was very humble, you know, as talented as she was, you would never know it because she wasn't the one to to brag or boast or anything. And she was very kind. She would always write a thank you letter to anyone. If you just, you know, gave her a piece of gum, you'd probably get a thank you note from, from Mara. That's just how she was. Um, and this is back in the day where, you know, everyone wrote handwritten notes or postcards. Mara always did that. You know, even though her and I communicated on chat and instant messenger, She'd always write me little postcards, and they'd be the most random postcard. It would make no sense. It would have no relevance, but she'd send it to me just to make me laugh. Um, So she was kind of the jokester, you know, being the youngest until my little brother Curtis came along. She was the one to make everybody laugh. Yeah. Sometimes what is so hard for families is not the initial trauma, but the ripple effect. And when it goes on for so long, um, it can be catastrophic in its own right. How has your family survived itself for the last almost 20 years? Well, this definitely brought us together. Um, Mara, Mara's disappearance forced us to work together, work through disagreements that we had, and in my family, the number one goal and the number one objective is to find Mara. But sometimes we don't agree on how to get there and what course of action we should take. Um, but knowing that Mara is the North Star has always allowed us to disagree, but also come back together for the greater good, which is to to do the best for Mara and, and figure out what's happened to her. Now, I will say that, you know, my 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 siblings have... Um, some of them haven't had the best coping skills and people going through this type of grief sometimes don't um, pick up the the healthiest habits. And, you know, this type of grief, this unresolved loss, this is hard stuff. Um, And sometimes you feel really alone. And then on top of being an introvert already, you know, we're not the type of people that want to go sit there and have a social setting where we're going to talk about our feelings like that. A lot of times people in my situation isolate. 
and just kind of stew in the what if I should have done this and the blaming game. And everyone in my family has done that. Um, but at the end of the day, we've all come together and, and known, even though we disagree on paths, we all want the same outcome. So I feel really supported. And I feel like, especially my brothers, they're, they're great. You know, my sister Kathleen, she passed away now. Um, but you know, we're still going strong. Another thing that's so hard, I think about family tragedies is that since everyone is going through that same tragedy at one time, everyone is the best support and source of empathy and yet has zero bandwidth because they're grieving themselves and, and processing and coping themselves. So it's a very rot thin bandwidth that you're dealing with. And there's a really finite amount. And yet it's the, it's the closed universe that you are operating in. So it's a very unique set of circumstances. And my heart goes out to you all. Um, to some X's and O's for a moment. Have you had the benefit of any federal resources at any time? Early, early on in the investigation, um, the FBI was involved a little bit. Um, we know that they helped. Uh, so let me back up. So w my family has always begged for the FBI because Mara was a Massachusetts resident. She was at UMass. She certainly crossed state lines. She was in Vermont and then in New Hampshire. So our argument was, hey, the FBI needs to be involved because this is multi-state. Um, but New Hampshire State Police said, nope, you know, the local um, police and the state police have to um, ask for their assistance. And other than asking them to help with some of the search and investigation down at UMass, that was kind of the only the only amount that the FBI was involved initially. Now, within the last two years, Mara has been entered into the VICAP uh, program, which is the Violent um, Criminal Apprehension Program, which is an FBI database. And so that was huge for us because we're like, finally, you know, we need these resources that the FBI has because the state police, they haven't solved it yet. It's 19 years. We need to get going. Um, but where we were very thankful for her to be entered into VICAP. And then here and there with different search efforts, um, the FBI was kind of on the periphery, um, but they'd never fully been invited to take a look at the case that I'm aware. Given that, or despite that, do you feel that we talked before about the physical searches and that you articulated there's always more to do, even this spring you have that lined up, um, because it's seasonal affecting there in New Hampshire, given the snow and whatnot. Um, do you feel that resources have been exhausted in the way of records and um, I guess it would be, you know, intra and inter-jurisdictional searches, but sex offender registries and, and knowing door-to-door you know, -door who, who existed, who had priors um, with similar MOs, do you feel that that has been exhausted in terms of the neighboring community around that situs? No, no, because, you know, here I am and my family, we're looking at what we 
what is public and what has been shared with us. And there's certain little things that I'm investigating on my own and I'm reaching out to people who I think might know something and I'm getting feedback like no one's ever talked to me before. And this is, I mean, this happened last month where I'm talking to someone that should have been interviewed that was not. So that's super frustrating one, but it means that there's more work to be done. And, and I feel like it, the burden's on the family. We need to do that work, package it up and give it to the overworked cold case unit and say, here's what I found, do something with it. So no, I, I, I think this case is solvable. I think there's more work to be to do. And I think the dots just need to be connected. I think we're dancing around, um, some of the answers, but we're just not connecting them because we don't have all the information. Can you share the type of, you said, so you spoke with someone who said, you're the first one that's talked to me. You said that person should have been talked to from the get-go. Can you share why? Why should that person have been spoken to? Can you, is it because where they live, because of their criminal history, because of where they were that night? Well, it's because their phone number was found inside Mara's car. Yeah. So police knew about that the second day. And when I contacted that person last month, however many, maybe two weeks ago, whatever it was, um, they said no one had ever mentioned that their number was found inside a missing woman's car. And that blew me away. I couldn't believe it. I I absolutely couldn't believe it. Nobody called the number that was in Mara's car. So it's just little things like that. It's like, what if I wasn't, what if I was just sitting back waiting on the investigation, the investigators to investigate what you would assume something like that would be blatantly obvious. Of course, you're going to call that number and say, why does, why is your number in this missing woman's car? Who are you? What connection do you have? Do you know anything? And things like that weren't done. So it just proves to me that it's on my family to do this. And if, if we don't stop doing our type, these type of things and making these calls and trying to put these pieces together, no one's going to do it. And that's um, incredibly frustrating. Can you share who that person was and what their number was doing in the car and at a minimum the format that their number was in in the car? Was it on a piece of paper? Was it um, as part of a card? What, was the, what can you share about that more? Yeah, I, I'm not going to share the name of the person or any of that because the online trolls will do some sort of witch hunt, and I don't want that. Um, but the right people have the information now um, that I have provided it to them. Uh, but it was a, on a piece of paper, and it was handwritten. There was a name and a number handwritten by Mara. Can you share whether that person was male or female? Mm. The person I talked to was male, uh, but the number was f- was an old number from that person's family. Can you share what area code the number was? Yeah, I mean, it was from where we lived in, in Massachusetts. Got it. So there's that connection there. And the other connection that I was able to make was that family owned a rental unit up at Loon Mountain, which was 25 miles from where Mara 
Hope's car was found in the direction that she was headed. So here's a family that comes from our small little area in Massachusetts with rental property in Loon Mountain where Mara was inquiring around the same area where Mara was inquiring about um, places to stay. Which, oh, by the way, the other person that Mara called in Bartlett for uh, a rental unit, that woman was never contacted by law enforcement either. My family contacted that person. Yeah. Um, what would be the greatest resource that you would request right now? Would it be for the Fed to come in? Would it be for more awareness so that individuals can come forward that might not be aware? Is it money to fund those the, the under underfunded, overworked cold case unit? What is the single greatest um, resource that you would want right now? My wish is that the FBI would take over um, because of the crossing of state lines. Um, but in reality, the best thing that I can ask for at this point, 19 years later, is that people continue to talk about my sister. People continue to have that conversation, um, keeping Mara centered, because a lot of these conversations that people have are talking about things on the periphery, people on the periphery, you know, and they lose so they lose focus and Mara just becomes a footnote in her own story. She's not even the main topic of conversation. And that's something that the true crime industry industry needs to get better at is centering the victim. Is this information that we're discussing um, victim centered? If it's not, then what are we doing? Why are we talking about this? It's is it just entertaining you? Is that is that why we're having these conversations? And that happens a lot in my sister's case where it just it seems like a hobby for some people just to entertain themselves with when, you know, this is my sister. She was a human. She's been missing for 19 years. I'm deeply hurt every morning when I wake up when she's not there and she's not telling me jokes to laugh at, you know, and people lose sight of that. She's just become a character and uh, not even the focal point of the story. That's very hurtful for families like mine. One of my sister's names is Julie. So I just, this entire, oh, I, I just, um, and the, the having the relationship that's rooted in such clear love and laughter. And, you know, I had the honor of watching a lot of your videos and reading your writing, like I've mentioned during our conversation. Um, I just want you to know that I think you do an incredible job of describing Mara as this amazing, beautiful, inside and out, one of a kind unique soul that um that touched everyone's lives that she came in contact with and it is your efforts have not gone gone unnoticed or unsuccessful that you have centered her um and that her memory is from the the time before she went missing is so vibrant and strong and impactful and clear um and that's a beautiful thing to witness just as an observer and i'm grateful to you for that i can't imagine what those mornings are like every morning and I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I, you know, I thank you. Things like this are, are helpful. You know, we're talking about facts. We're talking about Mara. Um, and she's not a footnote in this particular 
you know, session here. And so I, I thank you for that. And, um, you know, that's what cold cases need is just the awareness. And I, I'm just hopeful that someone out there might hear this and might say, Oh, I remember that. And they might think it's insignificant, but if we get a couple of pieces, we could put this mystery together. And, you know, Mara deserves that. Mara deserves better than what she's, um, been given, you know, in the media and online. Cause she would never, ever, she would, she would be mortified if she read any of the stuff that's written about her, you know, her eating disorder is just flippantly talked about online by strangers. Her sexual history is just talked about online. A 21-year-old woman just just talked about like it's just like they're eating popcorn. It's disgusting. When I think of her, um, I think of how you shared how she broke every record in her high school and how I think of her dimples and her huge smile. You know, that's that's a very... Um, it's such a strong visual of someone that clearly exuded this spark and was just such a gifted person in, in so many ways. And the way that you describe the family dynamic, which is so familiar and um, I'm sure to so many people, but we all have, you know, the, the best among us. And, and um, she certainly sounds like that. The things that I keep thinking about for me in terms of given the, the cold case nature. So you know, setting aside for the moment the lack of resources and what we've talked about, which is the the jurisdictional issues and and whatnot. I think about the change of landscape over 20 years, and I think about the notion of travel. And those are the two things that concern me the most. And what I mean by that is that, you know, in in 19 years, um, a local ascitis can change significantly and dramatically, sometimes for the better. So there have been um, many cases where clearing of brush, clearing of trees, um, some type of erosion, et cetera, has led to a discovery that has brought closure to a family. Um, or the opposite, where things get buried or covered and it makes it and obfuscates the, the, any type of helpful discovery. And then on the travel notion, um, I think about you know being alongside of a highway clearly and how fast m- miles can be achieved and how what seems like a local issue, um, as underscored and emphasized there by local and state police, or local and originally, and then it even took a while to get to the state level, um, could quite quickly have become an interstate, not because she was from a different state, but because she was taken to a different state. And the size of those tiny states up there in the Northeast um, amplifies that probability as well as that concern for me. Yeah, I mean, those are great points. And not many people talk about that. But those are, that is very possible. Um, Because, you know, she was gone so quickly, we have to assume that she got into a vehicle and she went somewhere. So where did she go? about VICAP and the the strength of recent legislation that occurred under the prior administration was essentially um, requiring and enforcing communication between state and federal agencies for missing and endangered persons, um, emphasis on women, right? So part of the difficulty up until two years ago 
and certainly in 2004, is the lack of communication, even between counties sometimes and within the same state. So my point about the the travel element is um, it's just further complicated by traveling through multiple jurisdictions, multiple layers of jurisdictions by virtue of crossing an intersection. All of a sudden, that's off a team's radar. All of a sudden, that means communication isn't uh, required. It means that there's it just makes it so much harder. So I, I hope I just I hope I'm not, I don't mean to be to sound negative. I'm, I just to sound logistical in the challenges that um, potentially that we're facing here, and also why this national attention is so important for this case, because it's not about exclusively who was there that night and who existed in that area. That's extremely important. Equally important is that concept of these tributaries that run all around the country and how easy it is to get anywhere quickly. Um, and therefore that someone who knows something is potentially 10 states west mm-hmm. or or what. Yeah, yeah. And that's that goes back to VICAP. We didn't we could not understand why Mara wasn't entered into VICAP sooner. You know, we're very thankful that she's in there now. But just like you said, now different jurisdictions can have a repository of information to look at different data points. Whereas before, like you said, it was all stovepiped and certain jurisdictions would never have access to that information or even know about it. And so now we've got more inside the VICAP system where you know, people can share information um, right online in the in within the database. And that's another positive step. And I'm thankful that the investigators did it. Um, you know, I don't know why it took so long, but she's in there now. And so we're one step closer to maybe solving this. And to be clear for listeners too, you know, that includes not only the, the facts of that evening and her disappearance and, and, um, immutable characteristics about herself and then also her dis- description. Um, but it's also MOs and facts of, of arrestees and um, convicted, and, well, depending on the, some some arrests go in there and some don't, depending on the law. But um, so it ha- there's a whole host of information to be gleaned is my point. So you can, you can insert as a fact parameter um, things like, you know, a, a, well, I, I didn't want to say the words because I don't want to, oxygen to conspiracy theories, but you know, the, the elements that were at play that evening, you can put that in and you can see what similar arrests or convictions have occurred and who is where that had a similar potential MO, the similar pattern of behavior that, you know, did X, Y, and Z each time, um, with a woman or whatever that that's something to search for too. And that's really important because sometimes all you have are these elements, which here to the point about the mystery, um, you don't know what you don't know, but you have what you do and what you have is enough. It should be enough. To your yeah. Point. It yeah. Should yeah. Be enough. And also, you know, they have Mars DNA. And so if there's a Jane Doe somewhere now that she's in VICAP, they can cross-reference that or, or at least get a point of contact to contact somebody at the New Hampshire State Police, who will have access to the DNA. But yeah, they have it. They, they've they got her dental records. You know, th- that's all data points that could help solve this that is now shareable and um, can be cross-referenced. So it's huge. Julie, what message do you have for listeners right now? 
What is the one takeaway you want them to hold? I just want people to take pause when they're consuming true crime stories um, because these are real people. Uh, my sister is was a real person. I'm a real person. We're a real family. And a lot of times people um, lose sight of that. And I think as true, the true crime industry gets better um, and, and holds each other more accountable, both consumers and creators, um, it's, it's going to be better for, for everyone. And it's not going to be as painful as it has been for my family. My family has been drugged through the dirt over the past 19 years. Um, every possible scenario from where hiding Mara to we don't want to find her to we're at fault for her disappearance has been said about my family. And I don't want other families to have to go through what we've been through. So my guiding principle is engage with empathy. So when you're consuming, when you're creating content, do it with empathy because these aren't characters. These are real people. And things that you say and accusations you make and insinuations you make hurt real people. Will you please share your website and how anyone can get a hold of you if they do have credible tips or information? Absolutely. I tell people with credible tips or information to go directly to the cold case unit. Um, there's a phone number that's on my website. Um, if uh, Sometimes I get people that are leery of law enforcement. They can certainly come to me and I will filter that to the right um, sources. But the website is maramurraymissing.org and the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit phone number is on there. There's also an email that you can reach me directly. I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Twitter and I am active on TikTok, as you know. <laughs> it kills me to do these TikToks, but it's been helping because I'm reaching a whole new audience. So that's the most important thing is getting that information out there. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's guys, for those of you who are listening, M-A-U-R-A-M-U-R-R-A-Y, missing, M-I-S-S-I-N-G dot org. <sighs> Julie, I... I just pray that you have closure so soon and that you have answers soon um, and that you have peace and comfort in the interim. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing your story today, for sharing this intimate, um, deeply heartbreaking experience on a platform that um, you are trusting with this message and carrying this story. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for that. And thank you for your service because you are you have a servant's heart. I'm seeing this like in, in, you know, in uniform and out. And, um, this is a full-time job and, um, and in all the time endeavor, obviously, because family's first and Mara's your North star, like you said. So thank you for honoring us today with your message. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close? No, I'm just, I'm just so thankful for this opportunity. I, um, I, I typically am a little um, guarded or I should say um, that's not the right word. I don't 
I haven't had a bad experience with media types, um, but I have had certain people in the industry do my family horrible. And so sometimes I am a little defensive, um, but you made me feel completely comfortable. So I thank you for your empathy. And uh, that's, you know, part of the message that I'm, I try to get out now is just treat people with empathy and can make it a little bit easier. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. And um, we'll keep you in our prayers and thoughts and amplifying this, your website and this search. And, and we will uh, look forward to that day where there's answers and closure and peace. Okay. And we'll have to do a follow-up once we find her. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.